My name is Jim Noka. Welcome to Knife Journal Podcast, episode number 26. I'm with Kyle Versteg. Hey, hey. He's on the other end in Iowa, and sitting next to me is one of the best bladesmiths <laughs> on the planet, bar none, the legendary... Tim Zawada. He's making uh, some Conan the Barbarian type shit over there, I hear. Or, or something. I'll, I'll have to pay you for that later. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 and uh, you know what? I may have embellished a little bit. Probably a but, lot. But probably not as much as it really needs to be. <laughs> he really is He really is a phenomenal knife maker. I mean, and an excellent teacher, too. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm coming up. Uh, hopefully my grinder will get in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then I'll sneak up and maybe spend a few hours watching a master because i i've never actually seen another bladesmith work ever I, I think i've i've mentioned this in the in one of the earlier ones but he has got like the biggest drop hammer on the planet oh, when he when he when he hammers for damascus the seismographs go off that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> well it, it it shakes the house i don't think the seismographs go off but how big how big it is it shakes the house how big is the cement how deep uh, is the, the cement the cement goes down 11 feet below ground oh. level there, oh. there's there's 16 <laughs> yards of concrete in the hole oh. um, the machine itself weighs about 20,000 pounds it's it's a 60 pound <clears throat> steam hammer which means the ram weight is 600 pounds oh. and it'll do a, a 22 inch stroke up to 200 blows a minute Jeez. You don't even have speed. to have the steel hot. You just push it in there and it smushes it. And it well, and you kind of do. <laughs> well, so here, here's, a, here's a question. Like, where do you find something like that? Because I, I did see that there's a company that's still making those kinds of hammers, but it's like mm-hmm. ten grand, and the shipping would be crazy, and, like, I don't... What, I can't justify it. it. It's I, all in the shipping. I actually bought the hammer for 400 bucks. Wow. There, there was a guy that was trying to sell it to me for years for what it was really worth, and I just couldn't afford it. And it was in storage in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the storage company was going under, and he called me one day and said, Tim, how would you like to buy that hammer? Well, I'd love to, but you know I can't afford it. How's $400 sound? Because that was the scrap value of it at the time. Uh-huh. He says, the trick, trick is you've got four days to move it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I bought it, but then it cost me $1,000 to move it back towards my place and put it in storage. Yeah, you had and to then, hire a trucker, probably. Oh, yeah, it was a, a low-boy semi and a crane and all that. And then it sat there for nine months, and then I moved it again, and that was another 1000 bucks. Jeez. When I set it up, I hope my wife isn't listening to this. <laughs> yeah. And, no, she you knows. Know she is. <laughs> she knows. And then, you know, the foundation, the first foundation cost just under $2,000. Oh. And then when I moved up here, it was another 1000 bucks and $2,500 into the foundation. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the hammer itself was cheap, but the moving and the setup, and because it's a steam hammer, I'm running it on compressed air. Oh. And it takes a 60-horsepower rotary screw compressor to feed it. Jeez. And so the used compressor was $6,000. Yeah, that's the kind that they so. fill, like, scuba tanks with and stuff, right? Well, I don't know. I don't scuba, so. Well, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's got, like, a V or a four-cylinder engine on it? Uh, well, it's got a 60-horsepower gasoline engine on oh. it. It's a gosh. Yeah, you ought to see it. It's an F head overhead valve engine. Oh, international harvester engine on it. Oh, that'll never quit. And and so, you know, the the hammer was four hundred bucks, but between all the moving and the air compressor and everything else, you know, 
the yeah, but still, you're and, you're still you're probably still under under what it would cost to buy what it would one. cost to get one of well, those. Well, that's it. And so, if if you're really after one, you know, start looking at used machinery dealers, old forging companies that are trying to liquidate their stuff, things like that. Is there even any steam hammers being used anymore? Oh yeah, still as steam Absolutely. or as air. Um, I think there's still a place in Jackson that's running them on steam. Wow. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm not quite ready to commit to that. <laughs> and the steam, the steam. Well, and, and honestly, if I were to do it all over again and wasn't trying to produce Damascus commercially, mm-hmm. which I did for quite some time, I don't anymore, but I did. If I was going to do it all over again, I'd build a big press and get a medium-sized hammer. Okay. For for just general knife making use, that's probably the most versatile way to go. Yeah. And for a couple thousand bucks, you can build a pretty macho press. Sweet. And what what do you do with the press? Same thing you would with the hammer, except you squeeze it rather than hit it. And that works? Oh, yeah, it works great. Wow, that's cool. And, and most of the guys just starting out, that's the way they're going. Well, I don't I don't think I'm ever going to try to make Damascus. Now, famous last words. A couple years ago, I said, I don't think I'm ever going to try to make a knife. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Damascus, that's a totally... I actually once tried to forge weld. <laughs> and that was like an exercise in stupidity right there. It just uh, yeah, I mean it's so difficult. Now, do you do you know how to weld period? Uh I Stick I weld? can I'm not I'm not any kind of a artisan at it, but I can weld. But um I don't own a welder, but I can always use my next door neighbors and you know. Can you hear can you hear Boomer? No. Yeah, he'll probably okay. show up on the uh now he's he's out barking on the front door. I yeah, think he, he wants to barking. come in. Okay. Let me let me go let him in. Okay. He's pretty quiet. Yeah, you know, with the Damascus making, honestly, my, my standard line is if I can do it, it can't be that hard. Yeah, but you got that's but, some serious <laughs> equipment there. Well, but you don't need the equipment. That's the thing. You you can forge weld by hand Ooh. and and it's not really that difficult. I'm going to take know, a lesson from you. Okay. Yeah. So you can just you can come up any time, but the thing is, it's not all that difficult. It's just mostly paying attention to details and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you just need somebody to show you what the details are. Yeah. And that's why you know when you look at the market, there's Damascus available that's just fantastic, and there's Damascus out there that's pretty crummy, mm-hmm. just as a as a material. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just attention to detail. Now, now Delbert's Delbert stuff is really good. Yeah, Delbert and, does a nice job. Delbert, what's his last name for? Delbert Delbert Ely. Ely. Yeah. How, do you, how do you spell that last name so people know? E A L Y. E A L Y. Okay. E A L Y. It's Ely. I think his website is elyknives.com. Okay. He he learned from you. Well, he learned a lot from me. I don't remember if he was forge welding before he met me or not, but he's learned a lot from me. When I first met him, he was working at Burger King. Yeah. Yeah, his wife still does. <laughs> yep. When I first but met him, he was working at Burger King. I don't think he does that anymore. Nope. Nope, Delbert's making a lot of steel and a lot of uh, high-end mokume for people right yep. now. And what precious metal mokume. What is that? Mokume, it's, the full thing is mokume gane, <laughs> and it's um, diffusion welding of non-ferrous metals. So it looks like Damascus, but most commonly you'll see it with copper alloys, like copper, brass, nickel, silver, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then with higher-end stuff, you'll see mixed in... Um, the Japanese alloys, Shakudo and Shibuichi, which are both copper alloys, but then gold, silver, sterling silver, palladium, and things like that for jewelry. Oh, so people so are making jewelry out of it, not necessarily... Well, bolsters. Well, bolsters jewelry, not necessarily and, and stuff like this. <laughs> like, 
No, 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 yeah. not like that. But they'll make fittings. They'll make bolsters and guards and fittings okay. and things like that. And cool. you know, for the Japanese style folks, they'll you know, make um, fuchi and kashira, tsubas, um, the manuki, that sort of stuff out of it as well. You're not you're not ready for that yet. I I don't have any idea what you just said. <laughs> honestly, I have no idea what, what you just said. Well, pretty pretty Japanese stuff. Okay. When you when you start getting into the realm of paying like ten thousand dollars for a folding knife, that's where you'll find that stuff. Yeah, no, I'm well, I'm nowhere near there. <laughs> well, but actually, if, if you look at Delbert's kitchen knives and things like that, he he'll use Mokume on the bolsters and that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, William Henry Knife Company. Um, Buys Damascus from Delbert, but they buy their Mokume mostly from Mike Sackmar. Okay. And so now if you, you look at you William were Henry, it for them. For well, I was doing the forging for Mike for quite a while. I taught Mike Sackmar how to make Mokume. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want like to do all the tedious stuff of the stacking and the cleaning and right. all that. So he would forge, fuse the billets together, then ship them to me, and I would squish them down in my big hammer and do the forging and the twisting and whatnot, then send them back to him for final machining. But if you look at the William Henry pocket knives, you'll see stuff that looks like Damascus on the bolsters, but it's brown and silver and yellow. It's beautiful stuff. I and, mean, it really, really is And that's is what ornate. the Mokume is. Yeah. And it's, it's a similar process to making Damascus with a few tweaks. The, the, the folder, how, the, how they're coming up and making these folders, like, you know, like, like this one. Um, that's from uh, Three Sisters Forge. Like I, I'm not even conceptually at a place where I could even dream of how to make that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I mean, I could probably design it. But the problem is the execution of it. There's no way I'd be able to like tune a folder and all that stuff. I there's a lot. There's a lot more to designing a folder than what you think. Oh yeah, believe me, I could design it so that it looked cool. <laughs> but as far as maybe, it work, maybe, maybe. Well, as, as far as it working, like no, no, I, I, I don't even understand it yet. So, maybe it's someday. just, it's just geometry. It's not that big of a deal. You just have to sit down and learn it, just like anything else. Hmm. Yeah. The part that left-handed people understood. What's that? Geometry. Geometry. Yeah, actually, I'm the rest of it. The rest of it, we didn't get so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the visual stuff, visual math, like um, like the concepts in uh, calculus and things like that. I was a whiz at. Um, I could because I could see it. You know, I could visualize it. But the other, mm-hmm. some of that stuff just gets crazy. But geometry was always pretty easy. Yeah. Well, then you could learn the folder stuff. You can learn any of this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. It, I, so I kind of want to learn to make a decent fixed blade first. <laughs> uh, that, that's so, where you start. Yeah. So now Tim is... Go ahead, on, Macy. So now Tim is making razors. Oh, man. And and uh, there was a... The, the last the last journal had a picture of one of his razors in there that was pretty fancied up. and you, I think that you said it went to Russia? Well, I don't remember which one it was. <laughs> which razor it was. Can you just... You have to show me. Can you just run through, like... Um, like making a razor, th- there's got to be some things that that separate that from making any other kind of like even if you made a fixed blade razor, there's something different about the blade than than what we do with um, like making other types of fixed blades. So ignoring the folding action, like what are some of the key points that make a, f- a razor different? Well, well, the big thing is in the geometry of the blade, yeah. Because okay, Jim's just showing me the picture of the razor. I don't know if you can uh, see it with back the backlight. Back it up a bit. There's a lot of glare on it. I can't even see it. 
Okay. So, okay. anyways, but that's the, yeah, that that razor um, did go to Moscow, Russia, and what the main part of the blade is, it's uh, a laminate or Damascus of meteorite and O1 tool steel. And then there's an O1 tool steel edge welded on for it. Now, was this? Wasn't this some of the steel that you made from? This is not bloomery steel. From from the UP? No, that's that's a different deal. He he makes his own steel, Kyle. Jeez. But this <laughs> this this razor, this particular razor, is um, iron nickel meteorite mm -hmm. from Argentina. Laminated to O1, and that's the Damascus portion of the blade. Okay. Then the cutting, and because meteorite won't harden, then I've got an O1 tool steel edge welded on. Mm -hmm. And then the the tang is inlaid abalone, and then the scales for the razor are abalone as well. Okay. And it ended up with a guy in Moscow, Russia. Wow. Which, you know, with our stereotypes of Russia, you think, wow, that's kind of wild. Those guys can afford it. Mm -hmm. but, but Probably he, the Russian mob. Well, he's, he's actually <laughs> an engineer who travels all over the world. He's for, a really interesting guy to talk to. For our, um, for our users at home, um, can you explain meteorite? Well, meteorite is space rock that falls from the sky. There's several types of meteorite. You know, there's the iron meteorites, which is what I forge into the Damascus, mm -hmm. and it's the silver lines in this blade. And then there's stony meteorites you know, out of different kinds of rock. Where do you even but find them? So, uh, so they fall out of the sky, Kyle. Yeah, I know, but they're, where they're, do you... They're how like do you falling stars. They're the ones that I, you wish well, on. Well, I get it. It's so it's an actual <laughs> meteorite, but the thing is, yeah. is like, where do you even find it? Oh, there's guys that deal in it. There's guys who make their whole living just finding meteorite and reselling it. Wow. Because it's, it's used in jewelry, it's, you know, in all kinds of stuff. But what I want is the lower-grade stuff that's not good for jewelry. And, and then I forge it down into bars of steel, mm -hmm. laminate it to itself several times so it behaves. Because it, it likes to crumble and fall apart when you forge it. Okay. But laminate it to itself several times, then laminate that to another steel to make Damascus out of. Hmm. And really, all, all that you get is you can say, see those silver lines in the Damascus? They fell from the sky. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't make it better or anything else. It's just what I call the gee whiz factor. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, gee whiz, look at those silver lines. They fell from the sky. Moon rock. That's awesome, <laughs> yeah. I think. Even though we're on a rock that's hurtling through space as well. <laughs> yeah, but it's the rocks, that, the rocks that hit this rock. Yeah. And so, but... But back to the razor differences. The big differences in the razor is the geometry mm -hmm. com as compared to a knife. Because when you sharpen a razor, you lay the whole thing flat on the stone. You don't hold the spine up of the razor up off the stone like you would a knife. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, the spine of the razor is your honing guide for setting your angles. Okay. And so because of that, um, you've got to pay attention to how thick the spine is relative to how wide the blade is. So that when you, d you do your math, you've got a c included angle of typically between 16 and 18 degrees. Okay. So as an example, a uh, uh, seven-eighths of an inch wide razor will have about a quarter of an inch thick spine. Wow, that's thick. That's thicker yep. than I would think. Yeah, it is. But then you grind it very, very thin. Okay. And, and, and that's the other thing. The edge is, the edge is thin. Does the spine change all that much? or? Well, no, you leave the spine thick, and that's why they're usually very deeply hollow ground. Okay. And so then typically I'll grind it down to the edges about a thousandth of an inch thick, right at the cutting edge, and about five thousandths of an inch thick, oh, 20 to 30 thousandths of an inch above the cutting edge. So it's ground very, very thin. And, th and then the big thing is just having everything stay straight. 
and not wrinkle that sort of stuff. Hmm. So, do you do you have you tried to shave with one of those yet? Who me? Yeah. Uh, my barber shaves my neck with one, <laughs> but I'm yeah. not going to do go. it. You know, it's yeah. a good way to think of it is is a razor is as different from just a utility knife as a sword is different from a utility knife. Yeah, you know, they they all have sharp edges, but how you go about them and why you do the things you do are different, mm-hmm. and how you treat he treat them are different, things like that because what you're trying to achieve is different. You know, you're never going to pry your broadhead out of a tree with a straight razor. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry about any kind of extreme tensile strength or, or impact strength. I've been uh, shaving with those little razor blades. Oh yeah, that I got one sick on of that. buying. You know the five bladed vibrating you get from. Uh, yeah, the, he, the, the, like uh, the Mark art of the shave or whatever. <coughs> yeah, yeah so the Gillette Mach fives or whatever they are. Right. And uh, I mean, three of those blades cost fifteen bucks. Yeah. Well, I you, mean, it's ridiculous. You have it's that crazy. Uh, you have that crazy like one blade deal, right? Right. Yeah. Right. That you, now I'm shaving with one from like the 40s. That guy on uh, uh, a straight you, razor. Yours from is the, 40s. the one from that that that, that pawn show guy. Um, yeah. 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 Yep. Pawn stars. Pawn stars. That's right. Yep. 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 And that's it's just a single Gillette razor yeah, blade. Yeah. I, 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 I shave that. Yeah. I, yeah. I I really don't watch TV, so like <laughs> if there's like a reference <laughs> to a TV show, like. Half the time I don't even. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know even, what they're talking have, about. We we cut the the cable on our TV probably twelve or thirteen years ago. Yeah. So we don't have TV either, and I don't have a clue. Yeah, you want to see what I did instead of uh, watching sports ball on Sunday? Well, there you go. Yeah. So sports ball. Yeah, whatever that big event was. You like didn't. You know what I did? I will say this. I, I'm not a big. I don't like to watch football. I watched one Super Bowl. My from end to end in my entire life. Yeah. One. I watched one big famous kick that was like the longest field goal uh-huh. in history. was like in the 70s. Something. Early 70s. Yeah. yeah. I watched that kick. I didn't watch the game. I don't even know whose team he was on. He was on Detroit. It was 63 yards. I remember yep. that because I was a little kid and it was yep. a big deal. And I watched that and I watched um, the New Orleans Saints play when I was in Haiti. Oh, wow. And that was the only game that I've ever watched from the starting kickoff to the to the last play of the game. Yeah. Well, I but my I, wife I like did make me watch stadium. Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. Yeah, I, I'm not a Chili Pepper fan, but but Bruno Mars I do like. I think he's a very talented individual. Although he's a stoner. Well, there's that. Yeah. But but um, I I I will. I will say that I'm happy to play football, like, you know, like pick up games in the park across the street here, or I will even go to a stadium and enjoy the tailgating and all that and watch the game there, but I just can't sit and watch TV. Like, I just, just drives me crazy. But, um. I'd be, af- I'd be afraid to break something if I played football now. <laughs> ask you a, a question about um, some heat treating mythology that I've heard. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and I don't have an opinion either way. I'm just parroting what I've what I've seen. So there, there's a thought 
that if you, um, I'm just going to say generic stu- generic steel A. Okay? okay, you heat it up to critical. You let it soak five minutes at critical, and then you quench it in an oil. Okay, generic steel A. Is okay. is there any benefit to running through that process like three times and then tempering? There are some that says there are. Most notably, Ed Fowler, <laughs> out, out in Riverton, Wyoming. Um, but honest to goodness, metallurgical tests on generic steel A doesn't show any improvement. Well, it what, what's what's far more important is getting that critical temperature or the austenizing temperature right. Uh-huh. And and so you want to be sure you've got good controls on that. And also, depending on what steel it is, that you're going to be able to control the atmosphere so you don't have decarburization, or at least decarburization that you know how deep it is while you're soaking it at temperature. Uh-huh. But you know, if there was a, a real honest benefit to doing that, then industry would be doing it. Uh-huh. We had we had spoke earlier, a couple podcasts ago about uh, that Sharon steel that used to be the popular knife steel, um, 0170-6, I think it was, and it was it was almost like that all the different knife companies were using that because it was easily heat treated. Oh sure. And yeah. it was it wouldn't matter and it performed pretty well whether it was fifty, like fifty six or. 59. It still performed mm-hmm. fairly well. <coughs> well, see, you know, you got to realize that industry isn't always going for optimal heat treating as well. Right. You know, they've, they've got to dial in what you would call, uh, not necessarily the idiot factor, but they've got to keep their customer in mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say a, a knife for somebody who knew how to use knives and was careful with their knives performed better at a, a hardness of Rockwell 61 They've got to realize that in the general marketplace for people who buy Bucks and Gerbers and Spydercos and things like that, the guys aren't going to be careful with it. And if they heat treat them all to 61, they're going to get a bunch of busted knives back. Uh So they deliberately dumb them down to 58 so that the bulk of their users won't have so much trouble with them. Mm -hmm. Even though for a careful user, 61 might be a better knife. And we were talking about how, like... Our dad's generation would always, you'd have one guy that would say, oh, I really liked my K-bar, let's say. And then another one said, well, I like my case. I used to have a K-bar, mm-hmm. but it didn't hold an edge as well as this case did. And it, and I was saying that it was a lot of it had to do with the fact that he might have gotten one that wasn't quite heat treated the same as, as the case. Maybe it was a little softer or something. There was something a little bit different in that batch compared mm-hmm. to what the... The other ones were. Well, steel batches vary just from the same manufacturer. Yep. I mean, you'll see steel batches from Carpenter or Crucible. Each batch comes out a little bit different. And they used to they used to heat treat them in like big baskets too, or something. Oh, didn't sure. they? And then they would and it move them around. If it came in first, came out last. And it depends on if it was Friday or Monday, right. and who was getting on and who right. was getting off, and who was running heat treat that day. And and there's all kinds of variables, so they work within a certain set of parameters that will work out for the majority of their customers as opposed to doing you know, what most custom knife makers do, you know, where a, a big batch might be 10 yeah. at the same time. And, and a lot of guys just, just do one at a time. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, then again, you know, we're using Rockwell numbers to, to say, well, you know, this is hard and this is not hard. You've know, you got to remember, too, Rockwell numbers are only how well that piece of steel resists the indentation of a diamond under a 330-pound load or 150-kilogram load. 
how you got to that hardness is just as important as how hard it is. Because, mm -hmm. you know, sometime when I can draw you a bunch of pictures when you come up, you, you can take a piece of, let's say, a simple steel like 01, and I can take it through four different routes and still get you Rockwell 60. Mm -hmm. And only one of those routes will be a good knife. But when you put them in the Rockwell machine, they all say Rockwell 60. Mm -hmm. But three of them are absolute garbage. And it just has to do with understanding how you can get to Rockwell 60 by various methods. So when you talk about Rockwell hardness, you just got to remember all that is is an indication of how hard the steel is. But it doesn't tell you directly anything about tensile strength, impact strength, edge retention, you know, abrasion resistance, any of that stuff, unless you know the background of how you got to Rockwell 60. Mm -hmm. So you got to keep that in mind, too. So it's a lot more, it's a lot harder than what people think it is. Well, it's not necessarily harder, because if you follow the right recipe, it'll work. But if you want to tweak the recipe, then you've got to understand what's going on. Yeah. Well, but, you know, if, you take, if you take a piece of 01, soak it at 1,490 degrees for 10 minutes, quench it in an oil that cools it down below 1,000 degrees in less than 4 seconds, get it down to room temperature, temper it at 400 degrees for an hour, you'll have a decent knife. Yeah. I mean, it, it will work. Mm -hmm. But if you want to start tweaking that, that's when you get into the nerd stuff. Hmm. <laughs> well, and this is, this is why um, if I ever start making these things to sell, if I ever get to the point where I'm, you know, comfortable with my workmanship, I think I will probably have it commercially heat treated because I can't control the, the temperature that accurately. I mean, I, I can get it close. I can, you know... Looking at the color, you know, you can kind of tell, and then the magnet, and but as far as like, as far as being precise, I think I I don't think I can match that precision. Well, actually, actually, you can. I mean, if you know, <laughs> doing what you do for a living, you've got to pay attention to details. Yeah, you just need somebody to show you what to look for. And, and see, he's t he's got a nice he's got this salt bath thing. Oh, but that's I. I can still show you how to do it by eye and still be within 10 to 15 degrees. Yeah, see, I, I just and it's don't just have knowing what to show me that. It's knowing what to look for, so when you come up, I'll show you. Okay. But doing a knife that way is tedious, and if you're trying to do it to make money, you, you'll drive yourself nuts. Yeah. And so that's when you get into kilns and salt bath furnaces and things like that. But all you got to do is watch the newspaper for some old lady selling her, her ceramic pottery stuff. <laughs> you know, and, and you can pick up a kiln for a few hundred bucks. You know, East yeah. Jordan got rid of all their all their pottery kilns, and I should have bought one. Because those were those commercial ones that they mm -hmm. had. They had like four of them, and they got rid of them for like $100 a piece. Yeah. And they were they were like 220 They weren't three-phase. They were just 220 with a with a uh, thermostat on them. Huh. And so, but you can still do it by eye and get a real good job. Hmm. You just you're always wondering though as you pull it out of the forge, well, was the tip a little too hot or was it a little too cold? Boy, you know it might have been off just a little bit. But with a kiln or a salt system or something like that, you just always know that it's right. Yeah, and and see, I just uh, I'm not really I've I've had really good luck, you know, but it really is just luck, you know, with with the stuff that I've made and forged. Um, you know, it seems to hold an edge well, seems to sharpen easily, you know, it does all the things that that I would look for in a knife. Um, but, you know, th these these uh, Knife Ninja mall types, they will sit there 
and like obsess over the tiniest little detail of of something you do and like trash you based on something you weren't even like it wasn't even completely on your radar you know that's that's the problem is like how do you that people are so finicky about stuff that to me doesn't even make a difference i don't even know i don't even know how to address that you know other than to get it commercially see, done when you're well th- the thing is i think you're look at you're talking about two different things i mean you're you're talking about making a knife that you can sell commercially as opposed to somebody that's going to just want the absolute perfect perfect grind lines perfect heat treat yeah perfect 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 and he's paying five grand for a for a folder and he will never never cut anything with that knife yeah so you could make it out of anything and he wouldn't have known the difference that's the that's the frustrating part about it well it's one of those deals though where there's something for everybody i mean there's the guys that go out and they're perfectly happy you know to to buy their mossberg or Mm -hmm. You know, whatever, and then there's the guys that have to have their Weatherbees, and, the and then there's the guys that have to have their Purdies. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's room for everybody, and the same thing with knives. You know, there's a lot of guys doing a real good job making, you know, blacksmithy, Buck Skinner, just very simple type knives that you know you hammer it out, you polish an edge on it, and you're done. And then there's other guys, you know, like Wolfgang Lorkner, who sit there and file and file and file the way to make this perfect dagger. It's six thousand dollars, and yeah. there's room in the market for everybody, mm-hmm. from from Volkswagen Bugs, I mean the real ones, from Volkswagen Bugs to Lamborghinis and everything in between. And same thing with knives. Uh-huh. And you just you just gotta find what niche you like to play in. Mm-hmm. Was it what was it the um, Bud Wierenski dagger that sold for a million dollars or something like that? I remember how much. Yeah, Buster Wierenski made a couple get daggers that were all gold. Yeah. And the, the most famous is the, or something what like. was the King Tut dagger yeah. is the most famous. It was a recreation of the dagger found in King Tut's tomb. Hmm. And I can't remember what the, the selling price was. You could probably do a Google search on it and find out. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot. I, I'm trying to remember. No one knows. No, I, I think the the number that sticks in my head, which could be completely wrong, but there was something like eighty thousand dollars worth of gold in it. Wow. Just the value, just the value of the gold. If you melted it down, scrap weight. <laughs> but it was beautiful. You should check it out. It was a, a real big deal in the late '80s, early '90s, something like that. We've got a, one of the ads in this uh, in this coming up issue is a is a set of Kachina daggers that are that's probably a hundred thousand dollars worth of knives that uh, that a guy's kind of showcasing. Yeah, but just like anything else, something is worth what someone else is willing to pay for yep. it. One of the things that one of the things that I learned early on in this game was a lot of times when the maker goes away, unless he was so famous like a Bob Loveless or or uh, Bill Moran or or Tim Sawada, um, I th- their knives become less than uh, uh, valuable when they go away. Um, they're when they weren't seen at shows anymore. I bought a an Ott knife. Ott, um, is it was it Bob? I think was his name. Yeah, I think I don't remember. He, I mean, he's an old time, old school maker. Made beautiful, beautiful folding hunters, gorgeous folding hunters. Stag handle, you know. Probably in back in the '60s, it probably sold for a couple hundred bucks, mm-hmm. which would have been a lot today, you know. And I found one for eighty bucks hmm. on a guy's table one time, and he he 
he said, yeah, he said, I know, I mean, he was a very valuable guy. This came out of a collection that he passed away. I'm trying to think of when he passed away. It was like in the, must have been the late 90s, mid 90s maybe. And then five or six years later, I picked up this knife for 80 bucks. Hmm. When it should have been, you know, by today's standards, it's every bit as good as, you know, most custom makers that are making folders today. The fit and finish is beautiful. Uh-huh. And 80 bucks. Hmm. But that was, you know, so so it's obvious that it's not, if you, you need to really love something to spend that kind of money for it because if you're thinking that you're going to make money at it in the future, unless yeah. it's a, unless it's one of the guys like Bob Loveless or, uh, I'm not sure that that's such a great investment. Well, I mean, there's been there's been a fair number of articles written about that. Well, here's here's um, here's my thing is like I'm just I'm just doing it because I like it. Like I don't I don't care if I ever sell anything. You know, like I I I can it's cheap entertainment. Like I made this knife that's a a fixed blade. Um, you know, and put a lot of thought into it and did a bunch of work on it. Cost me twenty three dollars to make it, but it was like mm-hmm. it was two days worth of entertainment. You know, right. it's it, for twenty three bucks, two days, forty eight hours worth of entertainment. You can't beat it. You know, and if I never sell anything, um, I'm still having a lot of fun doing it and playing around and you know, getting to test out ideas and stuff like that. And I don't know. I've got I've got like um, about ten more pole cord that really could use some entertainment with a sledgehammer <laughs> if you want to come up. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty... Uh, I mean, that's fun. That's, yeah, well, that's I, pant I, loads of fun. Listen, that's a yeah. hobby up here. Split yeah. Yeah. When, when my, when, listen, when my grinder comes in, I'm making a trip up there. I might even make a long weekend out of it. Um, so, so you've got a grinder ordered. Yeah, and it's it's uh, I got a Burr King uh, okay. variable speed, one and a half horsepower, um, Coming did you get all of the? Did you get all the attachments for that? No, I because I didn't know what to get. I just got the. I just wanted to start with the grinder and then add them as I needed. But I did get a pedestal for it. So it's it's actually coming in up to Escanaba, and so it's it, it's an easy trip for me to go up there, you know, play around, you know, that sort of thing. And then I'll be, in, uh, up I'll be up in. I'll be up in May. You want to you want to talk about the thing that's happening in May? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's some major excitement going on up here in May. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we're, we're going to have our, our first annual, first ever Great Lakes Bladesmith Skilled Knife Seminar. Hmm. And and what the thing is, it, it's based on the Ashokan Knife Seminar that's been, been running in New York since the early 80s. Okay. And as opposed to a hammer-in, th- this is a seminar, so it's, it's actually going to be very regimented. There's certain things going on at certain time with certain people doing the lecturing. Mm-hmm. And I, I pull out the list on my phone here so I don't forget the right guys. But there will be everything from basic blade forging. I know Mike Davis is going to do a blade forging demonstration. Um, all the way through making precious metal mokume that we talked about earlier. Delbert Ely is going to be talking about putting together fancy mokume and sort of everything in between so there's something from the rank beginner guys who's never even seen a forge weld before us yeah well Well, never done it successfully anyway (laughs) well kevin casey is going to do a forge welding demonstration Mm -hmm. and later in the day he's going to do a talk on different damascus patterns and how to achieve them so everything from that from guys who've never seen that before to you know, blade grinding and heat treating. Kevin Cashin is going to be do the, doing the heat treating demonstration. 
things like that. So yeah, Kevin, Kevin, for those who don't know, is uh, is an ABS master smith. Hmm. He's he's probably he's one of the new guard. Well, he is um, on the board of directors now. Right. And and so that that kind of actually mentioning the ABS brings up why this is the way it is. Right. And the basic history, and I might ha- have this entirely correctly, but the New England Bladesmith Guild started back in the early 80s as what they call a non-sanctioned shadow organization to the ABS. Okay. Where essentially they, <laughs> they got tired of the politics and the ranking and the stamps and all that stuff that was going on in the ABS. They just wanted to have a group that's sole purpose was to increase the level of the craft, teach bladesmithing techniques, heat treating, metallurgy, that sort of thing. So originally it was um, Jimmy Schmidt, um, Jimmy Fikes, and Don Fogg, and Dan Maragny was part of that too in some way. And they started a group, I, I believe it was originally the Three Blind Mice. <laughs> and, and the only thing they did was have this seminar in New York, and that has lasted up until the present time. It's been going on for 30-some years. Mm -hmm. And for the last, oh boy, 15 or so years, alternating with Dan Maragny every five years, I've been the director of of that, putting that together. Mm -hmm. And so in talking to Kevin Cashin, we decided it would be a good time to start one in the Great Great Lakes area. So we've started this group. Okay. Now now the difference is, especially as opposed to the ABS, is there's no real membership, there's no dues, there's no newsletter, there's really no club. The only real function will be this seminar once a year. And you don't get looked cross-eyed if you sell two dozen knives. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you go to to the show and a lot of the old-timers get kind of pissy about guys that are are like mass-producing knives Uh with 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 a hammer. But I, there, it's it's a different it's a different like a political thing. It seems like a lot of the ABS was geared toward guys that are retired and didn't need an income, mm-hmm. but they were selling the show to young kids that wanted to make a living selling knives. And they were and they'd go through the process, and all of a sudden they'd be like, "Hmm, I have seventy three hours into this one knife, and because I did it the way they wanted me to do it, I did every process one." At, for one knife, one at a time, instead of doing any kind of batch thing. Mm-hmm. And here they're going, well, I'm not making any money. I'm going broke, and I'm, you know. But the guy that was was preaching this way of doing it, this method, was a retired engineer from somewhere else, and he was making, you know, his retirement, and he was doing it as a hobby on the side. Yeah, that that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I can get to that in a minute, but I do want to plug the club real quick. <laughs> it's Great Lakes Bladesmiths Guild. It's glbg.us on the Internet. The website will be up by the end of the week. There's a Facebook page for the Great Lakes Bladesmiths Guild that's got the schedule on it, some of the information. This and is going to be a fantastic... Uh, it, it is modeled directly after oh, the God, Ashokan Seminar. That's Macy, <laughs> Macy, come here. It's okay. And it's okay. It's it's at um, Camp Maggot here in northern Michigan. Hey, no, let's just and let's just wait until he gets her under control. Okay. Wait, hold on, I wish I could. All right, thing. get the shit out of your okay. system. <laughs> okay, there's nobody here. There's nobody here. <laughs> there. Now shut up. Oh, you got zapped. She no, don't come see me. No, I didn't zap you. Go ahead out. There's, there's, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You guys were so good. Okay, go ahead out. Go on. There All right, go. let's go back. Okay. 
Are, are we still okay, cooking? Okay, so, yeah, we're okay. cooking. So, but it, it's a summer camp type setting. Um, there's a bunk room in the main lodge. There's individual cabins. You know, all the foods provided for the weekend. This, that sort of thing. So this it's, it's kind of like a retreat. This place yeah. is one of the best places to go to. You can't you can't imagine how cool this camp is. Hmm. It's been there since the twenties. I don't know. I want to. I, I know Morton F was really big. Yeah, Morton F was a big outdoor Michigan outdoors. Was a was a big contributor to this, but it seems to me that it's been around since like the maybe the 30s, 20s, 30s. Yeah, you can place. go on campdaggett.org and check out their place. But um, my kids all went there to summer camp. They went there every year. Jimmy actually worked there. My oldest boy actually worked there. He worked in the kitchen just so he could play on the canoes and kayaks and stuff in his off time. Well, now they got climbing walls, and climbing walls, and rope ladders and rope courses all that kind of stuff but anyways we're not doing any of that because we're going to be learning about smushing metal yeah mashing hot steel and actually one of the interesting things that will be there I just thought about Zeb Deming is going to come up and he's going to do a smelt from iron ore he's going to take some iron ore and throw it in his homemade smelter and pop a bloom of steel out of the bottom that's cool going to be doing that Friday night so so the the whole um, the whole object of this is to have a a seminar where you can come and learn, and this will be a reoccurring thing. Yeah, it's it's going to be annual. Um, yeah. And maybe if if it's if it goes, maybe it could even be more than annual. Well, but we got the New York one still going too. Oh, well, okay. It, so we'll do this one in the, so in the spring in New York in the fall. Cool. Um, but the idea is, it's it's all about education. Um, we're going to limit it probably to 80, 85 participants. That way, everybody's got access to all the demonstrators and lecturers. It's the lectures and demonstrations are fairly formal, but then there's lots of free time and informal stuff too to ask questions. And one of the ba- major differences of how we do it is it's going to be a nonprofit organization. I'm working on that right now. It's not going to be the Tim Zawada Hammer in. I'm hoping to step out of it in less than two years. Just get it rolling and get out of there because I don't want it to be known as the Tim Zawada's Hammer in at all. So we're going to have a, a little mini board, and that board will just be the guys that put together the seminar every year. That'll be their only function. Nobody's paid. And that's the thing, too, that none of the demonstrators are paid. And that's the big difference. We, we pay their expenses and their travel and everything else, but all they really get out of it is they get to come to the seminar for free. Mm-hmm. So it, it draws a different type of demonstrator or teacher. It's other, as opposed to people who are there to make a quick thousand bucks for the weekend and stand on a soapbox and say how great they are. <laughs> yeah, this because is a group of people that want to prom- want to push the love of the art. These these are people that are there that want to share and want to teach and want to help and want to learn themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a reason why I've been the director at Ashokan for all these years, and I'm starting this one is I can custom make my own seminar, and people who I want to steal their ideas, those are the guys I invite, mm-hmm. so I can learn from them as well. That's and a good idea. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never been to the Ashokan seminar where I didn't learn something. And, and that's kind of the whole idea behind it. Mm-hmm. So we get a different kind of camaraderie. There's a different kind of feeling rather than just showing up, paying a bunch of money, having somebody pontificate about how great they are, and then go home. You know, every there can now be a lot of that. Well, every now and then we'll get one like that at Ashokan. They don't get invited back. <laughs> Because it is, and and also the other big thing too is is 
different ways of doing things other than what is considered the standard are welcome as well. You know, so you know, for example, a pick on Wayne Valakovic for years and years and years. He would come up and talk about metallurgy stuff that just made no sense to me. Talking about how he could make the steel more dense by doing these different hammering techniques. You think you hmm. really can increase the density of steel? Okay, Wayne, that's nice, but let's move along. Yeah, <laughs> you get the atoms closer <laughs> together, right? Well, that's what he was saying. And that's, so that's the whole packed edge theory. Is well, that, that's another thing, and we can go there in a minute. But the point was, Wayne was always welcome to come. He was always welcome to talk. We would just avoid him for anything technical and metallurgical. Hmm. But for how he was doing his lapidary work, he was so doing some beautiful stonework on his folders hmm. you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s. And so he was always welcome to come. So there is no party line, I guess. Yeah. Not to pick on Bill Moran, because I liked Bill Moran. He was a really nice guy. And even though I'm not in the ABS, he and I got along great. He actually sent me customers. I mean, he was a good guy. But if you do things differently than Bill Moran, that's okay with this group. And I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Who was it who was just telling me about a, a Bill Moran story? Was it? You? Oh no, no, it was Ed Fowler's story. Oh, there's lots of those. No, the, the, well, it was, <laughs> I, and it was, it was, it was my my uh, my left-handed friend. Okay. The one that's that's. Um, not really a cheapskate. No, but I tease him all the time about it. But right, he's right. not really. He's, he's he's just a nice guy. Right. He he bought some uh, um, some Ed Fowler knives. Okay. And and I guess one of them was uh, the handle was just retarded, <laughs> and he he couldn't even use it. He said he ended up selling it because he said he couldn't even he couldn't even hold on to it. It was so awful. But anyway, does he still listen? By the way, <laughs> do you know? Have you yeah, talked to him? Or yeah, no, is he no, he still does. Mad at us? He does. He does. Okay. Yeah. He's an interesting fellow. He's been he's been busy though. We haven't done much. Well, that you know that that's a good conversation. It's one of those deals where if you're happy with what you're making, and Ed obviously is, yeah. And if his customers are happy with the value that they're getting for what they're paying, then that's fine. Yeah. Just let him go. Have fun. Yeah. Even though I do things very very differently than what Ed does. Yep. And I disagree I, with that on a lot of metallurgy stuff. If his customers are happy, then fine. Let them go make their stuff. And what I do att attracts a different client base, a different type of customer. And so that's just fine. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, uh, like we were talking earlier about the, um, about the way to make a living mm -hmm. and, and how guys kind of frowned on batch, doing anything in batches. And... Uh, I was. I had a conversation with. Um, I believe it was Tom Ferry. Is that Tom Ferry? I know the maker name. out west. I, I, He's I, an I, ABS I, master smith. Okay. Anyway, he's now jumped over into um, tactical folders. Okay. Because he said, for all of these years becoming a master smith, he was starving, eating ramen noodles and beans, uh, because he couldn't pay his bills. Because he was making he was he was making blades the way the ABS wanted him to make blades, and if you made them any other way, if you had a bunch of knives that were the same on your table, it was kind of frowned on. They didn't like that so much. You had to have all your different like like uh, ABS style test blades is what they wanted you to be selling. You you make what. And he was like, "Well, I can't make a living at this. This is ridiculous. I can't show up at a at a at a show." With five knives, yeah, and ex and expect to make a living. 
he said, I'm hungry. <laughs> so so he made the jump into tactical folders, and he said, you'd be surprised what how people look at him cross-eyed from, from that organization now because he's doing that. Well, you, you see a lot of that out there, you know, like Dan Winkler. Yeah. You know, the, the guy that made the knives for the Last of the Mohicans movie. Yeah. You know, he, he's doing tomahawks for the military now in, in bulk. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's doing real well with them. I, I sold him a heat treat kiln to, to do some of that stuff. I haven't talked to him recently, but I guess he's swamped with work. Mm-hmm. See, perceptions are a funny thing. Now, this was, well, it's 15 years ago now. But after the Knife Makers Guild show one evening, we're all sitting around in the lounge just kind of talking about the perception that you, you had in the magazines at the time and how they were trying to push the trade and how you could be a custom knife maker. And so we sat around, and at that time, the Guild has shrunk since then, but there were 430-some members of the Knife Makers Guild. And we're sitting around, okay, we said, well, who do we have here that first has a family, so they're supporting their f- a family with knife making, that the wife does not work, that they're not retired from another job, you know, that they're just the standard American family, and they're making, doing the whole deal with their knife making. There's no annuities, no, no retirements, no trust funds, anything else involved. And of 430-some members of the guild, we could come up with eight. Hmm that were actually doing that American family knife-making thing entirely on their knife-making. Yep. There, there were very few. It's very difficult to do. I mean, even today, it's difficult it to is. do. It is. And now, I think that's changed quite a bit. You know, this was probably 98 or 99 that we did that. Mm-hmm. But there are very few guys that were doing it that either weren't single and had nothing to support other than themselves and a cot in the back corner of their shop or had money from somewhere else. Hmm. And that and that is one of the that is one of the things that, that you know they always call them starving artists and there's a reason that that name came into well, play. <laughs> well, and partially because people who are skilled craftspeople are not usually very good business people. Right. That is yeah. that is true. That is. Um, come here, Macy. You don't need to go outside. So it's it's, it's a funny business, just like anything else. But yeah. you, you know, you see some people, you know, like Chris Reeves coming over from South Africa. When I first met Chris in the mid-80s, he was one of those starving artist knife makers in mm-hmm. South Africa making knives. But then he's gone into a you know, semi-production basis with his shop out in Idaho, mm-hmm. and, and Chris is doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Bussey is another example. When I first met Jerry in the late 80s, starving artist knife maker, just trying to get by. And you know now he's doing... I don't know how many different companies he spun off of his Bussy Combat. It's it's kind of funny. We, but we, he's got we, Swamp Rat and all this other stuff, but Jerry is, is good at marketing. Mm-hmm. We say that quite a bit. Yeah, okay. We, well. the, man, the man that can sell uh, a knife without a sheath. Is okay. Does he sell his knives without a sheath? Yes, yeah. oh, I didn't totally. Know that. Okay. Totally. He's <laughs> and, he's, I mean, and he sells a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does. And he, he sells them full retail price, and he, mm-hmm. he doesn't... Uh, well, it's amazing and to me. That's back to back to if if he's happy with his product, and his customers are happy with his product. Well, God bless him. God bless him. Good for you. Yep. And <laughs> and he is he is uh um like I said he makes he makes decent knives. I mean some of his some of his early stuff was. <laughs> Jim zapping the dogs again. Um, some of his early stuff was uh kind of thick, but. I think yeah. he's. I think he's changed quite a bit well, along the way. People him, evolve, you know. I've always teased him about how thick and heavy his knives yeah. are, but I never. I haven't seen one in in over ten years now. But I really like his Enfi steel. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a fabulous material. My only gripe with Enfi is that he should sell it to other custom knife makers. Well, you can buy it. Can you, you can buy, buy it? it? Well, not from him, yeah, but you can uh, buy it from any steel company. It's paper cutter steel. Yeah. One, one of the, we looked See, up, I haven't kept up. We, one <laughs> of the things that we looked at was, uh, we were talking about this last, last episode, was uh, trademark and patent stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Impy Seal came up as a, as a trademark thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, and he said, well, it's available because you can look at the formula, mm-hmm. the formulation, sure. and you can see that it was a particular steel that was made for paper cutting. I didn't know it was made for paper cutting because Jerry told me the formula, and I actually did some heat treating right. with some of his early stuff. Right. And, and I know what it is, but I've been sworn to secrecy. Right. But I didn't know they used it in paper cutting. Yeah, that, well, it was kind of an obscure, I mean, that's kind of an obscure um, market. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, uh, how the hell did we even find that? Do it you was, remember? It was, it was we, were in in, um, we were sitting in uh, Mike's office, and he, he, pull, had, he pulled he up a, the website where it's some big American steel manufacturer, and we, they, they, you know, it's this paper cutter steel, and then it's got the exact same formula as Enfi. Yeah, okay. and well, I, I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Gary gave me some, and I made a hunting knife out of it, and I did, I think, two or three deer with it that fall, and, and I had a real fancy duct tape handle wrapped around <laughs> it, and. <laughs> When I was done with the last deer, I just left it all gooey and tossed it in the snow by the wall of my shop and left it there till spring and dug it out in the spring, and it was just fine. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, was, um, it was a neat steel. I, I liked it. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that we were talking about was the fact that you couldn't, you couldn't trademark or patent that steel because it was already being made, mm-hmm. but you could patent and trademark the name, the name in right. steel. Absolutely. And so and so that's what uh, that's that's what we were, that's what the conversation well, I mean, was see, about. That's marketing. That's why I that's said Jerry. Exactly. Jerry is a master at marketing. I mean, look how many pages he buys in the Blade magazine that's every right. month. That's right. And it's the same thing. I'm I'm working with a company right now that's looking at mass producing straight razors, and and we are right now looking at having our own steel made, not actually something that exists and trademarking the name, but actually having our own steel made. And one of the primary reasons is marketing. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, we couldn't get just what we wanted, and so that is true. I, I want something with with carbon at about the eutectoid point for a straight razor, but I don't want to go with 1084. I need something that's oil hardening or hardening in a, a mar-quenching, mar-tempering salt system. And so we're, we're very possibly looking at having our own steel made. Hmm. And yeah, that's, now what kind that's of a kind of cool? What kind of a, a a melt do you have to get to have your? Well, own that's on? what I'm checking into right now. I've been told a minimum of two thousand pounds, but it depends on the manufacturer. Yeah, probably between t- two and ten thousand pounds. Hmm. So you know, it, it takes some serious money to do something like that. But anyways, you know, like I said, you know, we will get a slightly better steel tweaked for straight razors, which will be nice to have. Mm-hmm. But the big spinoff will be the marketing of it. Now, yeah. would that be would that would be a bit more brittle than a no? It, so it would be almost as impact resistant. We're, as we're, it, it doesn't matter on a straight razor. I mean, you're not going to chop things with your straight razor. All these movies know, about people killing people with straight razors. A straight razor is good in a fight for one cut, because after that, the edge is just toast. Yeah. Because they are so thin and so delicate. So people have been killed with straight razors, don't misunderstand. But you'd be better off with your Spyderco Clip-It than a straight razor in a fight. 
because a straight razor won't last. So what we're looking is only sharpening and edge retention, which is all that matters in a razor. Right. Mm -hmm. That's all we're looking at. And and the steel that I'm looking at, honestly, probably wouldn't be as good of a knife as just something simple like O1, because O1 has typically like 0.9% carbon, and so what you've got is um, little extra carbides or cementite floating around in the matrix of martensite when you're all done. And those will actually flake out of the edge a little bit and give you a little micro sawtooth effect as the edge wears. Now, not huge like D2 does. Now, would would uh, um, oxidation be a, a big factor in that? It is in any razor. So the, so the, the yeah. amount of carbon in it is really quite important. Well, no, not really. I mean, that's not going to vary the oxidation rate. But oxidation in any razor is what kills the edge before shaving does, in, in any carbon steel razor. And and that's why, hey, I shaved with this and it was great, and I put it up on the shelf and shaved with it next month and it was horrible. Well, and they say that uh, even even a regular razor, when you're done with it, you're supposed to dry it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what, if it's a straight razor or whether it's a single razor blade. Well, a straight razor should be dried and oiled yeah. between uses. Yep. Between every use, you should oil the thing. Because, like I said, oxidation will kill the edge faster than shaving with it will. So... What we would be doing, though, you know, back to the marketing thing, is making a steel that is just suited better for straight razors and the processes that we use. That's a big, that's a huge market nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go to the big malls in the big cities, you're finding a place now called uh, the Art of the Shave. Art of Shaving. Or the yeah, the, the Art, art, the of, art shaving. of Shaving. Yep, my my son is actually now their company razor sharpener. Yep. He's sharpening for all their stores. And uh, so. and they, uh, have you seen one of these places? Yeah, they have it at Mall of America, but I, I didn't yep. go in because I didn't want to spend. I, I went money. in. I I actually <laughs> I actually have some of the products that I use. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the the shaving cream and the oil is quite nice. You know, and I shave like a lot of. I've got a lot of real estate from my chin to the back of my neck that I shave with, and uh, the top side. <laughs> Uh, so I, no manscaping. Yeah, so, right. But from the from my chin to the top of my to the back of my neck is is all shaved. And I'm going to tell you that when you use their oils and stuff, when you use the oil first and then the soap, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. Hmm. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, they make good stuff. Yep. They really do. And I'm not a big. I, I I can't bring myself to to the straight razor yet. I, I'm not quite there yet. I I don't have the confidence. I'm afraid that uh, my ear would end up in the sink. That's another thing. Under yeah, like, you know, it'd be like it. on uh, <laughs> on uh, that movie, uh, Usual Suspects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. There's just that. There's just that thought that 
Um, well, see, you guys that love all your sharp knives and toys and everything else, it's kind of like the ultimate sharp toy. Yeah, yeah. You get to play with every day. Every day. That's if, so if, if you have a real job like you do, you, know, you you gotta look pretty when you show up for work most times. Mm-hmm. And you get to play with your toy every morning before you go to work. Mm-hmm. And so for people who like sharp stuff, razors are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Try it, Kyle. Yeah, maybe someday. Well, you gotta you, let you gotta you come gr- up. I'll show you. You gotta okay. grow like three days worth of growth though before you can shave with it. Oh, no, really? You don't. No, you don't. <laughs> he might though. But a good because right now he's using the cat whisker or the cat uh, the milk cat? and the cat. Yeah, hmm. milk but and the cat with licking it off. But a good straight razor <laughs> shave actually. It, it will last longer than a regular Bic or something like that because it shaves closer. Mm-hmm. So for a guy that gets a 5 o'clock shadow, it, instead of a 5 o'clock shadow, it's more like a 48-hour shadow. Well, that's, See, that's that'd pretty be nice. Deal. Yeah. And so it, it takes a little longer. There's a learning curve. You know, but, you know, I've never that's the part that scares me is the learning curve. Well, I've, right? never, <laughs> I've never been cut worse with a straight razor than I have been with a Bic. Okay. You, know, you just got to be careful and go slow and understand what you're doing. And, and you just kind of think of it as a whisker squeegee. You just kind of scrape squeegee things off, and just don't go sideways. I mean, yeah. sideways is bad. <laughs> yeah, just the old slicing. Unless you want a new, you want a new pie yeah. hole in the side of your face. Right. <laughs> but the funny thing about a straight razor, actually, it's 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 similar. Well, with your business to a microtome. Mm-hmm. It, it, oh, you it mean a, a dermatome? A dermatome. Okay. Yeah. It, it 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 cuts by shearing rather than by slicing. Uh-huh. You want to shear so you don't rip and tear. Yeah. And so the edge is, is actually very polished, and when you run, slide your thumb along a straight razor edge, it won't feel sharp. Yeah. Because it's very, very smooth and polished. Huh. As opposed to a knife where you want a little tiny micro tooth, so, because most knife use is with a, a slight slicing motion. Uh-huh. You know what's interesting with that, uh, the edge on that Three Sisters Forge knife that I have now, uh-huh. the one that I got from you? Um when he polished that edge, he actually reduced the ability for that stupid thing to cut. Hmm. It's sitting. It's actually sitting out, out of my pocket because of that. I have to do something. I have to run that on that grinder or something because it's. I'll show you. It's too. <laughs> well, hang on a second. I'll show, I mean, it should be right there. There goes Jim. Well, and that's the, that's, that's one of the things I'm talking about at the seminar in May. Up here is my lecture is on knife and razor sharpening. Okay. And so I'm going to pull out the microscope. And you know, do a few different things and show the differences, and we'll project it up on a screen so people can see just what's going on to the edge, and and how and why you sharpen different types of knives differently from each other, and how and why you sharpen a razor different as well. Okay. And it's just understanding why you're doing what you're doing, and that varies your processes and your materials, etc. See, so put that he 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 yeah. buffed that edge so so shiny. Yeah, that it's it's not sharp. It's it's. It feels extremely dull. Well, and it is dull. So, <laughs> but we can fix that. I know how. Okay, now it's time to be good. Oh, this is a backwards knife. No wonder I couldn't close it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's left-handed. Yep. It took me a while to figure it out. Yeah, that's the uh, 
That's one of the things that we... You're not left-handed, are you? I'm not, no. That's a backwards knife. Yeah. That's one thing that where he's left-handed, too. Oh, you're both left-handed. Yeah. Okay. We're actually ambidextrous. Uh, that's the key. We're ambidextrous. I, I should be careful, then. No. <laughs> no, I don't care. <laughs> we don't care. We're, we're the 6%. We're proud. <laughs> we, we six percent big boy rules. You know? I don't know what is it. Is it six or ten? Oh, I don't know. The, the number changed. I think we were talking about this a while back because the number had changed because people stopped trying to make us right-handed. <laughs> so, what are you doing? Who me? Yeah, I'm just uh, looking at this thing. What thing? <laughs> what? What thing? I was looking at a knife. Oh. Yeah. The, the knife you made? So, yeah, so there's, a, there's you, a little bit so of a, uh, just a very slight, I didn't get it quite perfectly straight, <laughs> but it's so slight you have to look at it a certain way to tell. Isn't, you know, isn't, it, that, the, isn't that one of the hardest parts of doing something like that, yeah. is making it so that it's... Well, because in the, in this, it doesn't warp. Um, what 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 I did was um, I, I hammered so that there's a little bit of concavity in this area. So it's mm -hmm. flat at the top, and then you can feel yeah, a little I, bit. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and that was what it, basically what I was trying to do was just practice that to see if I could do it. And I got it straight, and then um, I think it probably curved just a little bit. Um, I mean, it's very slight, but it's there, and it's bothering me. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to how correct to it. it. <laughs> I, I can show you how. Well, how would you how would you correct it after it's been heat treated? Okay, is the whole blade hard, or is just the is just, just the edge just hard? Just the edge. Well, well, then you you can very gently bend it back straight. Yeah. If it's very slight, and a little help from a torch along the spine too, would do it. Would do it, but there there's ways of specifically and purposefully inducing stress on the concave side of the blade to force it to go back straight. So you could take a blade like that that is fully hard, uh -huh. not just a, not a soft spine. And by gently hammering on the concave side, in introduce stress that forces it away from that stress for the thing to go back straight. Okay. It's kind of anti-intuitive. It's backwards from how you think it would work. Mm -hmm. you know, normally, if you've got a piece of soft steel and it's bowed, you'd lay the concave side down on your anvil, smack it, and flatten it out. You know, kind of like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm showing Jim here on the table. Where with this, you have the concave side up and you hammer on the concave side. But that's only for things that are fully hard. For uh -huh. things that are not fully hard like yours, there's some tricks you can play with a torch and a vise, things like that. Make a mini press out of a vise, press things back straight. And as long as your heat treating was good on the edge so that your grain structure isn't blown way out of proportion, you can straighten things back out. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to think about uh, that. Yeah, there's, there's ways of doing all of that. You know, because like with a straight razor, your edge has to be really, really, really straight. And even if you get in heat treating, you know, three or four thousandths of an inch of movement, you've got to correct that before you do your final grinding. Mm -hmm. And straight razors are typically fully hard. Mm -hmm. So you've got to come up with ways of straightening things out because everything on a razor is based on the spine of the razor and how straight <coughs> that is. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll have a crooked edge, and if you have a crooked edge, you can't get it really sharp. Yep. And I would think if it was a crooked edge, you could be taking concave slices out of your face. Well, it just wouldn't shave well anyways, <laughs> because you couldn't get the edge you need with the honing techniques you use for a razor. Okay. You know, razors are an entirely different planet than just utility knives yeah. or kitchen knives. 
Yeah. And just like just like swords are on the other end of the spectrum, you know, just like swords and battle axes and hatchets and tomahawks, you know, they all have sharp edges. But what you do and why you do it, even you know, with your metallurgy and your steel choices and your forging and your heat treating and all that stuff, is very different. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want to see how different swords are, you can go look at the work of somebody like Peter Johnson, and you see how far you can take that. For being anal retentive about sword work, I think I think Jim's getting antsy. We better end it because he's been up now thirty times. <laughs> no, well, the I, he just the knucklehead just walked by and unplugged the computer. Okay. One thing I have is a, is on my MacBook Pro. I have that magnetic plug. Yeah. And well, I got eight hours of battery, but but it's I, one of the things wh- I could never understand why. Nobody else ever came up with that idea. It just shoves in there. Right there. It's just magnetic. There it is. Isn't that cool? It is. <laughs> the dog walked by and tripped on it and just pulled it out. Normally, in a any other laptop, it would have went flying across the table. Huh. But Macs have this magnetic plug thing that's pretty cool. That's sweet. Yep. Um, no controversy. I can't no rants. Anything. No, yeah. No rants or nothing like that. <laughs> it's Tuesday morning. The weather quiet. the weather is the weather's still actually it's beautiful up here. It's absolutely gorgeous up here. It's like what, twenty five? It's 20? about twenty. Huh. Blue 20 sky, degrees. sunshine and twenty. Yeah. Three feet of snow everywhere. We're about to so get killed by snow. The other thing that uh that Tim does is he is a pilot. Oh, cool. So he deals with the edge of a blade and a wing. <laughs> Tell you it's about under the heading of anything but a real job. <laughs> That's always well, fun. Well, almost. That's always <laughs> fun, though. That's always fun. I used to fly for um, FedEx, right? Yep. FedEx, and I hear that plane flying over, and I know I realize now why he doesn't fly for FedEx anymore. Because you live under the flight path with a shotgun. Yeah. Okay. And and it I, and w- the nights that that stupid thing is flying over, I'm thinking, why the hell is that guy flying over? Huh. That cannot be. Of the best flight ever. Well, it's just with FedEx, you know, it, it's the stuff has to get there. <laughs> it's so got to be there. You may delay a flight, but in I flew for FedEx for two and a half years, and in two and a half years, I think we can actually canceled about three flights. And they fly in the most miserable, miserable, miserable nights you can imagine. Hmm. Yeah, but that's that's the job. Hmm. So sucky. <laughs> <laughs> I decided it was a lot more fun to be home. Well, it definitely is that. And and hear the guys fly over. Is that you? Nope, that was your phone. So. Huh. Well, Anyways, well, I guess we can call this one quits. Yep. Put it in the can and. Uh, Look forward to meet you, meeting you in person when you get up here. Well, yeah, it'll be fun. I'm excited. <laughs> we'll hammer some hot steel and grind to well, make some steel dust. The dates again are. Uh, for the what gr- is it? May thirtieth, thirty first, and June first. My birthday. All right. And we're we're also pushing it as as a family event because we're so close to all the touristy stuff in northern Michigan. While the guys are grinding and hammering hot steel and that kind of stuff, families can go do the touristy stuff. You know, Mackinac Island, Fort Mackinac, all that kind of stuff that's up here, Bay Harbor, mm-hmm. Petoskey. See, and he wants to do that stuff too. Well, you stay come a, come a couple of days early and leave a couple of days late. Yeah, that's that's the idea. I think he needs to move here. Or just I, think, oh, I, think we need I would, but I can't make a living there. You could. I'm telling you, you could. I, I told you the the story, didn't I? What's that? We never did have that conversation. We we're looking for one of you. Oh, really? 
There is actually a, uh, a center that's looking for one up here. Well, tell them I'm available. None, right? Currently, there's no, nobody available up here. Hmm. Well, and I think our town is bigger than your town. Yeah, well, if nothing else, I could go and do a week at a time, like a week a month or something. You know, there's actually a, 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 a neurosurgeon that does that 15 days at the hospital in Petoskey hmm. and then 15 days down in Detroit. Hmm. Yep, they do that. It's cool. They do that. And you know, it's, it's a lot funner up here. I know. We have lots of woods. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is you guys have all the woods. I don't have anything like that down here. I have cornfields. Yeah. And lots of good fishing? Yeah, we have you, we have well, some, but not near what you guys do with the well, Great Lakes. Well, we've got the brook trout fishing. Yeah, we've, well, and the big lakes, too, the salmon. Yeah. And that sort of stuff, but you do, you guys do grow big deer down there. Yeah. So. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. We were talking about historic knives last week, and uh, or was it last week? Two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the the call for a um, Hudson Bay camp knife, and it was when the guys first showed up over here and they were seeing elk and bison for the first time. They were like, "These knives aren't big enough." <laughs> so, so. We need something bigger, guys. We need something bigger than uh, than this little this little knife, this little trade knife. We need something huge. But whole other story. Yep. Well, let's let's call it quits for today. And uh, got the hammering or the the, the seminar, seminar spoken. Yep, that's the most important thing is yep. the seminar. Yep. Guys need to really come up for that. All you guys that are hammering out hot metal, you want to learn something. This is the group of guys that. To come up. Yep. You know, Murph, yep. you know who I'm talking about. Well, and we will have a, a little knife show for two hours on Sunday morning, too. So, you can, you know, come up for the knife show and bring some stuff to sell. What's all, all that noise? As well. no, that's, that's Jim playing with his playing lighter. With Zippo. Yeah, we gotta, we got to end this. I'm going to have way too much editing to do with all this antsiness. <laughs> Talk to you soon, my friend. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, they should check out uh, knifejournal.com. Knife knifejournal.com. Send emails yep. and questions and email to <coughs> and, um, Jim. Snide remarks. Yeah. And Jim, the, yeah. the um, Great Lakes Knife Makers. Great Lakes Bladesmiths Guild. Great Lakes Bladesmiths Guild. On Facebook. On Facebook. I'm going to like it and share it today. And glbg.us on the internet here by the end of the week. Okay, right. guys. Keep your, keep your knife sharp and your friends sharper. We'll yep. catch you next time. Yep. Bye. Bye. See ya.